every Friday night after the League of Ireland games, a place for you to come to give your opinion to vent. There's a little button down on the left-hand corner where you can say that you want to talk. Catch League of Ireland late night, Friday nights at 10 on Twitter Spaces. Follow at Off The Ball. Oh, the shape that will get. You can get all the fans down. Can we not lock this? It's a fact. I am not playing mind games. I am talking about facts. I always said if I was Aladicci, I would probably say I was more of a tactical genius. The answer questions on anything. Uh, religious, politics, uh, health, you know, sexual uh, problems. Look at his face! Just look at his face! None of you except for those two have done anything to justify the money that you earn. None of you, disgrace! And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Yes, you're very welcome along to Team 33 and a call here with you up until about 10 o'clock this evening. Loads to get into on the show this evening. Another absolutely phenomenal Champions League week to get our teeth into Atletico Madrid. The villains again this week against Manchester City and loads more in between. Will O'Callaghan and Colin Buig are with me. How are you getting on, lads? How are you, lads? Good, good. Energised by another good week of Champions League and possibly one of the best passes we've ever seen in the history of the competition. We we laud goals, but everyone has just been salivating about that Luka Modric pass to Rodrigo. I think, for my money, I know he loves a pass with the outside the foot. Modric has always had a great range of passing anyway, but the fact that there was a much easier pass on to, to Vinicius, but decided not to go that way, which is kind of what took Rudiger out, and then the ball was so beautifully arced around Thiago Silva that I think Rodrigo only just had to open up his foot to put it into the bottom corner. One of the best passes I've ever seen. Yeah. The beautiful thing about the Champions League is that by Wednesday night, Tuesday night's coverage, even though it was outrageous, just seems completely irrelevant as well. You almost forget about the Modric pass because of what happened in the Manchester City Atletico Madrid game. Column, um, disgraceful scenes, horrific scenes, Awful scenes, things you do not want to see on a football pitch. Phil Foden rolling around for eight eight times and rolling onto the pitch. I mean, it's just <laughs> disgraceful stuff. Um, Atletico Madrid, the villains once more. Um, the ultimate team that shows us the things that commentators do not want us to see, but everybody who's watching wants to see more of this. Well, first of all, like speaking of disgraceful scenes, how come you've made nothing of the fact that this is your last team thirty three? And this should well, be I was going to, I was going to reveal that at the end. I didn't want to make it all about myself, you know. This is a special farewell episode. It's going to be the theme of farewells because I think that uh, that was a goodbye gesture from Diego Simeone to the Atletico fans when he was applauding at the end. I actually brought this up this morning in our pre-show meeting, and Will was on it too. I think maybe there was a bit of a split opinion. Well, actually, sorry, I think everybody else had a different opinion. Mine was that I think he was applauding uh, everybody goodbye, but I think a lot of people thought he was just goading. Uh, the fans and everybody around him, including his own players and the opposition and the referee. And he had just lost the rag completely. But in a typically, like, at the same time, quite controlled Simeone fashion, where he knows exactly what he's doing at all times. But I love that at one point when he seemed to be laying into Stefan Savage, wasn't he? For Savage. Uh, he was on the pitch, yeah. He was yeah, on the pitch for that. Going crazy at him, as if it was an opposition player. But I, I just, uh, I thought that that part was particularly fascinating, where just the constant applause and he just turned around to the whole fans and it was like, uh, it was so unusual. I don't think I've ever seen that before. It was kind of like watching on TV was quite the experience and it was kind of like hair standing up in the back of your neck moment. I don't know what he was trying to achieve, but that makes it even better for me. I'm not sure what you mm. thought about it. 
I think I he was trying he to sarcastically applaud the referee. Ref, yeah, I, I thought it was two things. I think he was very much sarcastically applauding the officials, which he was eventually booked for. I think his assistant got booked around about the same time too. And he was also trying to jeer them up, knowing that they had gone, at that stage, I think it was like eight or nine minutes into injury time. We ended up playing about 12 uh, before the game finally concluded. And it was a case of trying to rile the fans at the Wanda to just push Atletico Madrid to get one more chance. And as it worked out, Luis Suarez missed the chance which you normally would expect him to take. And, you know, not long before that, there was the deflection, which I think came off stones and ended up just going just over the crossbar as opposed to under it. And many people will wonder, why did Atletico Madrid wait until 65, 70 minutes gone in the second leg before they started to press the issue a little bit? And look, they created enough chances in the last 50 minutes to at least send that game to extra time. But uh, my reading of it would be that Diego Simeone was trying to achieve two things. One, sarcastically applauding the officials. And secondly, he was just trying to get the fans to give them one last push. He's been known to do this on the sidelines in big games, whether it be against Real Madrid or Barcelona domestically or in Europe previously. Simeone is very good at being the orchestrator and the conductor on the pitch to make sure that the fans uh, get right up for it. And Atletico will maybe feel that over the two legs, they were unlucky not to get the extra time. But as it worked out... Man City almost out Man City'd Atletico Madrid. I knew he was a bit of an orchestra conductor and all that. I I just I actually never knew he did that before, Will. I never knew that was his thing that he was doing. Like I I, th- I think the sec he did a second round of those applause and I thought, well, that's definitely sarcastic about the ref. Mm. But I t- I totally interpreted it differently. So at the start, whereas I was like, he was, you know, my final thank you to everybody. And I thought it was quite mm. rousing because everybody stood up and everybody was consistently applauding amidst all the madness of what was happening when players were losing control of their senses. And you know, local players were like, "Well, we're either going to get, we're either going to get through to the semi-final, or we're going to kill them if we don't." And in the midst of all that, Simeone's trying to get the crowd up. And I thought, like, "Well, this is great. Like, this is exactly where, if you love or hate Letico, you can't keep your eyes off them." And yeah, uh, they're, they're, they're incredibly, out. they're incredibly entertaining. And yeah. my favorite tweet about the entire thing was that the thing about somebody said that the thing about Simeone is if you're playing for him you are almost willing to go that extra mile for him because you know he would die for you, but also there is a, a chance that he would also stick you in the boot of his car and kidnap you and your family. So you're, you you love him, you fear him, and you know that he would do do the same for you, but he's an incredible manager. The thing that annoys me about this, right? So the Atletico game plan, we know it at this point. People are saying it's counterproductive, that it doesn't work, that it's shown that it comes up short. They're playing against the second richest, maybe the richest club in the world at the minute. So you have to take that into account. Firstly, they are the underdogs in this. Secondly, if they go all out attack, it's not the same as the final 30 minutes of the second leg if they do that the entire game and then the entire two legs. It just doesn't work like that. Their entire game plan is to create as much chaos as they possibly can and then go for the kill when they see weakness in the opponents. And thirdly, I think there's a large, a heavy, heavy mixture of hypocrisy when it comes to the, uh, the, the way that we talk about Simeone's team or the way that the media talk about Simeone's team in the sense of their cynicalness, their, you know, the, the dark arts that they use, the time-wasting, the cynical fouling, as if Pep Guardiola's sides don't do this. And we saw it last night with Phil Foden rolling around. Fernandinho... Was the, is was and has been the breaker up for up for, for Man City. How many yellow cards has he taken down the years from cynical fouling, taking the players out when they're on their counter attack? There's a reason Man City have so much control is because they are able to do this as well. They just don't do it in your face in the same way. Busquets, exact same type of player, really good player. Don't get me wrong, but really cynical at the same time when Pep 
had uh, had Barcelona. Every every single team do do this. They just don't do it to the same extent or to the same sort of, you know, rousing applause from their fans. I think. Probably the difference with how Atletico Madrid deploy it and is the fact that even when they were chasing the game last night, they were happy to take a few tactical fouls along the way. It just seems to be inbuilt in the DNA of that team. Like, I can understand why there's a discussion within Spain, outside of Spain, about Atletico Madrid. Because if you look at the talented players that they have available, there's an argument to be had that if they played a slightly more expansive system, you might be able to get more from the players who are involved. Now, if Simeone leaves this summer, perhaps they go to a coach who plays a slightly different style of football, and maybe we'll get to see that then. Like It's a shame in a way that Joao Felix has to do as much running as he does defensively, as opposed to being a player who can you know, use his creative skills further forward. I was surprised that Rodrigo de Paul didn't actually start last night. I think he had a little bit of a knock, but I thought he was really good when he came on and actually made a big difference for him. He is almost the quintessential Simeone player. He was so key to Argentina winning the Copa America. He's a guy who can put his foot in and also play with the ball. While Simeone has been happy enough to use you know, former flair players like Thomas Lamar as an almost extra runner in midfield, which again, like seems a waste of his skills. But if you're going to play for Diego Simeone, you have to buy into the system which Atletico Madrid are going to play. And that is to their great credit. And that's why they've won a couple of legal titles under him. It's why they've got the Champions League finals. It's because they will sacrifice their individual talents in order to try and make the team better. And you see that with Anton Griezmann as well. You know, he is a player who will dig in and at times almost played like an auxiliary midfielder uh, to come back into positions to actually, you know, and over the two legs, uh, Griezmann had to do a lot of running without the ball. And this is what Atletico Madrid are willing to do. I, I agree with you, by the way, on the style of football. I love the game last Sunday in the Premier League between Liverpool and Manchester City. It was like a game of chess, counter-attack to attack. It was like basketball even at times where there were no dirty mm. tackles going in. The ball was just being passed around. There was lovely, silky football. But last night is no less compelling when you've got shithousery, players being pulled down, both teams trying to get any advantage that they possibly can. And on Phil Foden, had that been Neymar or Di Maria, say if PSG had been playing Atletico Madrid last night, I can guarantee you that the English commentary teams would have had a go at Neymar for rolling eight times and particularly the cynicism of rolling back onto the pitch so that the game couldn't restart. Like, I can't understand why Stefan Savage ran over to actually pull him up. Like, his actions were entirely incorrect. But the frustrations that you have as that game is ticking into extra time, that you see a player who is trying to kill as much time as he possibly can, you can see why Savage got annoyed. And that would have definitely been called out by the English commentary team if it had been a non-English player and a non-English team. Big time. And Savage for me, Savage for me was right. I, I actually, I honestly don't see anything wrong with what he's doing. He's pulling a player off the pitch that's not injured. He knows he's not injured. And he's, you know, he's just doing what uh, he thought was best to get the game underway. On the actual commentary, they did mention during this whole like Shiraz uh, and, uh, you know, the kerfuffle on the pitch. Why do Atletico Madrid, why do they do this? Why They're wasting their own time. They're losing the game. The referee added nine minutes on after this. So that's why they do it. I mean, if they just stood there and let Phil Foden roll around for a while, referee's probably not going to add another uh, eight, nine minutes onto the game. He's probably just going to continue it on. On the game plans as well, I do agree with you. And it's a major thing in football. You need you need a counter to what the norm is. You need someone to do something a little bit different. Otherwise, everybody's playing the same and there'll be no development at all. The likes of Pep, the likes of Guard, uh, Klopp, their game plan doesn't exist unless there are teams like Atletico, like Jose Mourinho's Inter, to push them on to think of new ways to win football matches against teams like this. They make Man City better. Man City learned how to win a game differently 
against Atletico during the week. And that might stand to them now when they're in the semi-final and potentially even in the final when they're going up against, uh, you know, a Liverpool or a Real Madrid. Yeah, like styles make fights, you know, and Atletico are a really good match for a lot of teams for that reason for our entertainment. One thing about it, like, is that they're so suited to to an occasion like midweek against Manchester City. It's absolutely made for this Diego Simeone side of the last decade. And and one one um, element of, I suppose, Atletico Madrid watching is what I haven't experienced much of, I don't know about you guys, is watching them against uh, teams where they're their favourites, where they're the firm favourites. And they don't, they're not able to uh, illustrate their nutritional style, the backs against the wall, because they're expected to be proactive. And I, they've won two league titles under Simeone, the defending Spanish champions, and they've been to, what is it, two Champions League finals in his time. Uh, but it was always with that mentality of us against the world. And I always, mm. I, I felt, I suppose, the one shortcoming with them is that um, largely, they're obviously like, you know, a plethora of uh, exceptions throughout the last decade, that largely that they're either not an entertaining watch against inferior opposition or they're not very convincing. And I wonder with Simeone's management style, wherever he goes from El Edico, will that evolve? Or is like has is this Simeone's only way of management? Or is it his way that he's decided that this Atletico Madrid project is going to work? And I'm I'm really interested to see if he goes to, you know, his beloved Inter Milan or wherever he goes after this. He manages Argentina someday, which I think is one of his uh, ambitions. Really would really love to see if he can ever curtail the physical side of the game. Uh, for the development and evolution of football. I, I wonder, does he even want to be someone like Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp? According to Pep himself, he obser- uh, Simeone observed one of his early training sessions with Barcelona and wasn't impressed. Was not impressed mm-hmm. by this uh, possession-based football. He's like, what's this all about? And Pep said, I knew there was going to be something about him because he's his own man. But I'm really interested to see where he goes next. But that occasion uh, midweek was like absolute prime Atletico Madrid. Nobody else could do it better. And they lost. And here we are praising them. Yeah, I don't think he will. Um, I don't think he will change his ways. He uh, now the name's not spring into my head uh, off the top of my head, but he grew up and studied under a manager who played similar enough to him. And um, when he was an uh, underage football and throughout his career as well, he was his mentor. And that's sort of the style of play that he played as well. Very reliant on us against the world defensive. Uh, style football and that's the way he was that's the way he was brought up within football that's the way he wants to play football so no different to Jose Mourinho I think it's just he's he's got away and it it works at times it doesn't work at other times I do agree I mean look the the biggest issue with it is people expect them to progress to the point where Barcelona are and Real Madrid are and um, they just don't have the don't really have the funds or the historical backing to do so. Um, so yeah, be interesting to see what what does happen to Atletico. I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that if you get a, a manager who plays pro- more proactive football, are they that they're not going to get more out of this Atletico team? But they're an incredibly interesting team to watch and entertaining. And I would love to see Simeone take over some you know some higher higher to mid table Premier League side, just to see what would happen um, in the Premier League and. See what he could do there. Yeah, but he's Elsewhere. an interesting character. Like he loves a flair player as well. Like he's always had a bit of flair team as well, you know. So it's not just backs against the wall for absolutely every element of his management. He does mm-hmm. like he likes a mercurial number ten as well, as long as they fit in to his system. That's a that's non negotiable. You have to do what Simeone says. And I think that's why people keep their eyes on him all the time. 
The yeah, key game. for them for the rest of the season, lads, for the seven or eight games that are left is now to qualify for the Champions League in La Liga. Whether that means that Diego Simeone is handing over at the end of the season to another manager or whether he decides to stay on beyond the end of the season. Like it will be a bit of a disaster year despite getting to the quarterfinals and being competitive against Man City if Atletico Madrid don't qualify for the Champions League. And it looks at this point as if the top two are probably going to be Real Madrid and Barcelona, given this run that Barca have been on over the last 20 games, including their demolition of Atleti uh, when they met a couple of months ago at the new Camp. It's just a case of they got Real Madrid are going to finish well out in front. Barcelona should finish second. As Sevilla are now concentrating largely on the league after being knocked out of the Europa League. They have to try and upturn their form to make sure they stay inside the top four. And then it looks like it's a fight between Pellegrini's Real Betis and Atletico Madrid for the last place, then the Champions League. And that, of course, presupposes that Villarreal or Real Madrid don't win the Champions League to open up another place in the Champions League for next season. But Atletico will want to make sure that they finish inside the top four. Again, I think it's getting to the point now where Griezmann becomes an automatic purchase. He had to play, I think, 50% of the minutes that were available in order for that clause to be triggered for him to sign for next season. So I think he's getting very close to that now at this stage. So um, you're, they're probably going with roughly, I would think, a similar squad to next season. It's just who's going to be in charge of Atletico Madrid. I kind of half hope that Diego Simeone stays on. I don't know if the Inter job is right for him right now, bearing in mind as well that Antonio Conte left because Inter were not making money available and Inter were having to sell some of their stars, chiefly Romelu Lukaku, last summer. I'm not sure if Diego Simeone wants to go into that situation as much as he loves Inter Milan. So it'll be intriguing to see who's actually in charge of Atletico Madrid next season. Yeah, 100%. We'll keep an eye on it anyway over the next couple of weeks. Champions League continued. Um, It was, I mean, a phenomenal week of football for many reasons. The Real Madrid-Chelsea game really delivered when we wanted it to. It looked like Chelsea were probably going to breeze it for the early 30 minutes or so of the game, but then suddenly Real Madrid sprang into life. And as you said, Will, that pass from Luka Modric, I mean, I was thinking of one man when Luka Modric did that, and that was John Giles. He loves Luka Modric more than any other player, and you can see why. He's just aging beyond what a fine wine age is at this point. He's just so impressive. Yeah, he seemed pretty convinced after the game that he's going to get another one-year contract at Real Madrid. And Madridistas were very keen to see him signed up beyond the end of the season, even though he's 36 this calendar year. Like, that midfield is aging. There is no doubt about it. I mean, Valverde is in there as really the only legs that started in midfield midweek. And you could see that Casemiro and Cruz, particularly in that second half, were starting to wane. And Chelsea had the run on them in midfield for the first hour or so of the game. And, like, I was very surprised when I saw Rodrigo and Marcelo come on. I'm thinking, this is not going to turn it around for Real Madrid. But, again, a bit like the PSG game when Modric made that barnstorming run through midfield and played in Karim Benzema, he proved to be as crucial as Benzema has been over the last few games. It's just Modric adds that bit of extra control and that bit of extra quality when they need it in the final third. And it's like you said, Andy, for the first 50 minutes hour of that game, it looked like only one team were going through with the way that Chelsea were playing. There is that kind of sliding doors moment where the ball flicks back up and hits off Alonso's right hand before he finishes the ball with his, uh, let's say, weaker foot on his right foot into the top corner. And it looked at that point as if Chelsea were about to run away with it because Real Madrid looked absolutely shocked. And then the weird part was, once it got to extra time, it was like Real Madrid got an extra burst of life. Even those players who looked really tired in the first half played very impressively in extra time. And you know who else but Karim Benzema will be there to head home the cross from Vinicius Jr. to send Real into the semi-finals. But it's a really weird couple of legs. Almost difficult to analyse how poor 
Real Madrid were for about an hour of their home leg when they were in a two-goal advantage going into it. It was it was a remarkably poor performance from Real Madrid, which would have to give, I would think, big hope that Manchester City, I don't know how you feel about lads, will probably feel that they can go through this uh, Real Madrid defence, even though Militao will be back in for the semi-final. Yeah, well, Colin, we mentioned this last week on the show about Real Madrid and just almost their experience within this competition compared to the other players and other teams, how how many players are in their squad that have won it four times and just know how to get over the line when it truly matters. That's what it seemed in the extra time for the Chelsea game. It just seemed like, you know, Real Madrid had players that knew how to see out that game as opposed to Chelsea. Does that stand to their advantage when it comes to a semi-final? Um, are they good enough to beat Manchester City? Uh, they're are they good enough. They shouldn't be good enough, but because of the European history, you wouldn't back them at all. It would be such a bizarre scenario if it was a Real Madrid versus Villarreal final. I think you know, but it could well happen. Like uh, I, I think Manchester City will win that match, but yeah, Madrid have been very impressive. I think they were very impressive to beat the European champions this round, and how fitting that the uh, the tie was ended with a Karim Benzema header, the team of the the tie. Uh, but I thought it was a brilliant match. I thought. Overall, actually, it was quite a balanced game. Like that, there was dominant spells for each. Um, so I thought I really couldn't call it was going to win it at the end, and I thought it was fair enough. Whoever did, uh, but you go back to that midfield three lads, like you said, Madrid is just a joke. Like to be playing that well at that age, like age really hasn't seemed to affect them at all. And speaking of John Giles, like you mentioned, I think the one thing that John regularly says. Uh, with us when he's on is that midfielders should be getting better as they get older and he Madrid definitely subscribes to that theory because um, even just in the Champions League alone this season he just the moments like the outside right foot pass like you said will already refer to it there against Paris Saint-Germain that driving run through midfield I love seeing a central midfielder taking on and beating men because it's the most difficult part of the pitch to do that there's so much pressure if you lose the ball there you're putting your team under serious jeopardy but if you do well in that area and you pull off going around the player, then you're going to be like instantly become world frame famous because every player that's been able to do that has been a renowned player. It's one of the most difficult skills in football, rounding players in the middle of the pitch. And he does that. And add to that, he has this incredible range of passing. Now, it helps when you have the two messers next to him, Cruz and Casemiro, who like Tony Cruz just walks around with the, the era of a guy who's playing a five-a-side with his friends and that football is like his fourth or fifth favourite thing to do. And it's just not that bothered by, by it all. Happy out. And uh, just finds his man with his pass. I'd love to see his uh, pass completion rate throughout his whole career. Just a phenomenally good player. And then Casemiro, probably the unsung hero of the three, holding it in the base of midfield. They have such good foundations, but they're ageing all the time. Benzema has been there since 2009. I, you know, I've considered the last few times the banana end is like, it's hard to empathize too much at Real Madrid you know they're in our lifetime they're traditional baddies they are the heels but there's something about the collection of players within this Madrid side that you wouldn't begrudge them a Champions League title here because it would be so fitting for that midfield three and for Benzema up front and for Carlo Ancelotti to win the Champions League with uh with a third time isn't it no uh, fourth time and third different club Mm. so yeah uh, they're brilliant I would say phenomenal uh, for a manager who you know, people weren't really rating when he went to Everton. People were like, can you know, can he still do it? Can he still you do it on top of them? You have to do a few flicks of your index finger to see his whole Wikipedia page of honors manager. Like, he's an incredible manager and player. Um, it was quite humorous as well. 
during the week, lads, that you had uh, Ancelotti facing in his press conference questions about leaving Everton to join Real Madrid, as if like joining the uh, Spanish champions and waiting and a team who are now in the semi-finals of the Champions League was a bad decision at the end of last year. It was it was really weird that he was actually even asked to justify that, or yeah. that it was odd. Yeah, they made it out as if it was a strange decision to leave hmm. his his nice job at Everton to go to Real Madrid. I mean, come on, it's one of these things, Ancelotti. You know, Pep and Klopp, obviously, for for obvious reasons, are at the top of the game and in front of everyone's eyes all the time. But Ancelotti always gave me the the air of somebody who just was just it just came easy to him. He just knew how to do it, and he didn't really have to. He doesn't have to flaunt it. He doesn't have to be in the public eye. He doesn't have to be named world's best coach. But he just just casually goes about being one of the best in the business. Yeah, there's just something about him that he kind of lacks, exterior-wise anyway, he lacks that obsessive nature that a Guardiola and a Klopp has. The, that's what he shows. Now, internally and behind the scenes, he could have, he'll be every bit as obsessed. Um, and his attention to detail could be phenomenal and unparalleled in the league he's managing in right now. But he does um, exude uh, <laughs> this emotion of like, you know, I love football and I love football management, but I know there's more things to life. And that attitude has actually helped carry him through this phenomenal managerial career. And I think he transfers that feeling to the players, which is like, go out there and enjoy yourself. And like, look, there's the extreme of that too. There was the reports when he was Bayern Munich manager that uh, the players led by Arjen Robin would secretly have more intense training sessions when he wasn't around because Ancelotti mm. wasn't providing them. But again, you just look at his CV and obviously he has done something right in his career to get the, the best out of extraordinary players. You know, people refer to, as you say, and his Everton spell that they weren't, too excited when he was appointed in the first place and he was seen as a bit of a failure there but I, I think what maybe Ancelotti learned and the rest of us saw is that he's probably best with extraordinary players elite players because he lets them play and he fills the rest with with good thoughts in their heads to go out and enjoy themselves and uh, express themselves and yeah. uh, I would be personally happy if I saw him lift the trophy because I think he's had a pretty managerial career and he's not really thought of that highly maybe, or maybe he is but I just don't think I get the impression that he's not I think he's one of those managers that'll go down later on in his career. People will appreciate what he really is. And they won't know why they appreciate him. There will just be, he was a good manager. And that's yeah, kind of the factor end of it. Well, look, he has multiple European Cups. And the other well, thing as well is on TV. Yeah. He, he seems to suit Florentino Perez quite well too, in that Ancelotti will go into Real Madrid and he's unlikely to kick up too much of a stink about the way that Real Madrid recruit. And like last year, Clearly, Madrid are trying to do two things. Save money to offer a bumper contract to Kylian Mbappe and they want to get their stadium finished. So that tied up quite a bit of money, particularly off the back of you know COVID-19 where revenues were down. Ancelotti is going in with a, squ- with a squad that's in balance. Like really, they needed to go out and get another left back. And we saw again that Ferlam Mendy didn't have a particularly good game midweek. The other option is to play Marcelo, who doesn't look in good physical condition and the years have caught up with him. And they're a bit short at centre-half, even though David Alaba has been one of the best signings uh, this season. Once Militao was missing, Nacho got cleaned in the Clasico against Barcelona, albeit he was playing over at left-back in that game. And midweek, I thought Nacho really struggled against Chelsea too. So often Chelsea went through that channel between right-back and centre-back. So ideally, Ancelotti would probably be saying, we need to rejuvenate this midfield. We need more than Camavinga. We need defensive cover. But Ancelotti's not the type of guy who's going to throw the toys out. And I think even if they don't get Kylian Mbappe, Ancelotti is likely to work with whatever players Real Madrid give him for next season. And that has to uh, appeal to Florentino Perez. And I'd say that's probably why his number was on speed dial uh, the minute that Zidane went and they needed a coach. 
dare I say he would be a good Man United coach. We won't go into too much detail on that because we do have to take a quick break and we will be talking about the future Man United coach just after this. Now you're welcome back to Team 33 and a call here with you with Willow Callahan and Colin Buig. So before the break, we were talking about the Champions League. We got into the Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid games. But we'll just really quickly, we should finish off with a quick word on uh, Villarreal and Unai Emery because, again, phenomenal result for a team which come from a town. It should continue, I should uh, continue to hammer home this point. Villarreal is a town smaller than Galway. That's what we're talking about at the minute with this club. They're a tiny, tiny club who have continually punched above their weight. Um, as a Celtic fan, I don't want them to go all the way. I don't want them to win the, the tournament because that would mean that the Scottish League don't get an automatic place next year. So I'm hoping they get to the final because all of the talk since they beat Bayern Munich, by the way, since they beat Juventus and since they beat Man United in the Europa League last year, all the talk is being, it's quite an easy draw for Liverpool, isn't it? Quite literally what was said on BT Sport last night. Like BT Sport's coverage was kind of uh, mind-melting at different times last night, particularly the uh, Jack Grealish moment where they went back to show Grealish and Savage. And they pixelated it. They, they pixelated his <laughs> mouth. And you're there kind of thinking, like the last oh. 10 minutes of the match, Pep Guardiola is being serenaded by the Atletico Madrid fans, not in a positive way. He's been called the son of a whore for at least 10 minutes, very audibly over the microphones. And then Jack Grealish uses the C word against Savage and his mouth is pixelated for the risk that at 11 p.m. we might be concerned about potentially lip reading what Jack Grealish said. We didn't get to see any of the fighting in the tunnel afterwards. BT Sport didn't go to that at all, which seemed bizarre. Like I was looking at Twitter and it was almost... Well, there's a whole different reality going on here. People are showing the footage from some of the other European uh, broadcasters and you've got security staff coming in to actually separate some of the Atletico Madrid and Man City players. We hear none of that. And then from the moment pretty much that Savage went over to wrestle with Phil Foden on the pitch, Darren Fletcher was saying, this is not what we want to see. And I'm there thinking, you know, as a neutral, this is exactly what I want to see. Uh, about eight players from each side are coming in um, to have a little bit of a schmozzle towards the end of a very important Champions League quarterfinal. This is the type of drama. It's exactly why we're watching the Champions League. And then it was very much a case of, oh, you know, someone think of the children for the 10 minutes or so after the game finished. And then just to wrap it up nicely, before they went to the highlights, uh, Jake Humphrey had thrown up the graphic, which is the final four teams left in the competition. And he used the phrase, only Villarreal stand between Liverpool and another Champions League final. And to Rio Ferdinand's credit, Rio Ferdinand was trying to point out that Una Emery's got a remarkable record in Europe, particularly over the last couple of seasons with what he's done with Villarreal, winning the Europa League and now getting to a semi-final in the Champions League, knocking out Juventus and Bayern Munich to do so. And Jake Humphrey laughs at him, almost like it's a foregone conclusion that Liverpool are going to sweep them at the Madrigal and at Anfield and just go through to another final. So, look, I appreciate that they're broadcasting to an audience that's in the UK, so they're going to play up to Man City and play up to Liverpool. I know you guys felt that I thought I was in a different dimension watching some of the TV covers last night. Yeah, well, well, here, here's the thing with the Liverpool thing, because nobody is trying to say, especially not me, that Manchester City and Liverpool aren't probably the best teams in the world at the minute. I think we saw at the weekend that there are two exceptional teams with exceptional players and exceptional managers. They play phenomenal football. But Villarreal have just knocked out the third favourites for the competition um, in Bayern Munich. They beat Juventus the previous round. And Unai Emery, this is from Colin uh, Miller on, on Twitter, excluding PSG because uh, you know they're PSG. 
Unai Emery has won 22 consecutive two-legged European knockout ties across three different clubs, reaching five different finals, and he has won four of those. So we're talking about a really good manager who's got a team to the Champions League final, and you're just talking so disrespectfully as if it's you know a League Two team that have somehow managed to get to the FA Cup quarterfinal. You know, it's not that imbalanced. They're a good side, well coached uh, here, Kong. Well, they're just like uh, Porto, 2003-4. Porto won the Europa League first and then they won the Champions League following season. And so like this would be a replication of that. And unlike Jose Mourinho, you have this, you know, maybe not a big personality, but the tactical obsessive. And I think he was very harshly treated. I mean, I don't know if Jay Humphries was thinking behind it beyond Villarreal or a small club, and let's concentrate on an English club, but because Emery had one poor spell in England, he's kind of seen as like a failure of a manager too, and clearly he isn't. Um, but it's no surprise, like, biased commentary, these lads, it happens in every country, but we're exposed mm. to to it in England a lot because of what we consume. Like, I was watching uh, highlights of Aston Villa against Tottenham Hotspur last weekend when Spurs hammered Villa at Villa Park. And uh, Harry Kane had quite a limited part oh, to play. Oh, no. In a couple of the, goals. This, and this the was excellent. One, this he, was flicked, excellent. Um, he flicked a header on in the centre circle, and it was the match of the day. I was watching the highlights. And it was who finished it? Was it Son? Son finished it with his left foot. So Kulusevski got the first goal, which Kulusevsky was knocked down. Win. That yeah, was that so, was knocked down by Hurricane, and then Son got the second yeah, okay. one. So the Kulusevski one, right? He just flipped it on. Okay, and Kulusevski had absolutely loads to do. Like he had, couldn't have it's had an more incredibly to do. tight angle. Yeah. The second one, it was the fizz on the ball to Kane where literally any player of his height just had to flick it on because he knew your man was behind. And so Son went through and finished it with, uh, well, he's a, he kind of two-footed Son, but I suppose right foot is just about his preferred foot. So no problem at all. Left footer, smack. Like you could hear that little ping in the net, which I love. Beautiful finish. First thing the commentator says, what a flick on by Harry Kane. Yes. I was watching it on my own and I said something I'm not going to say out loud. And it was after... And, like, I would never talk to myself out loud watching a match. But, like, I couldn't believe it. Like, because I kept it to myself, to myself. The first one for Kudasevsky was mm. like, fine, okay. He played a part in it. But the second one, I was like, ah, that's come on. He barely touched the ball with his head. It was probably going to go through the sun anyway. Um, mm. Now, look, we're, we're guilty of it in our own country, too, when there's Irish players. We just, you know, we don't see that many Irish commentators commenting on Irish footballers in a big stage. It doesn't happen too often. But, you know, we're guilty of it too. But, oh, my God, that's when you're exposed to it and he's the England captain. You're just like, please, can someone start treating him fairly? And that's why Roy Keane is such a nice release when that time when, you know, Keane wasn't having a good time, Keane was calling it out on British TV and um, kind of to awkward silences and responses where they kind of move the topic on quickly. Nothing against Harry Kane. He's an absolutely brilliant footballer. Exceptional. And it's not, and it's not Kane's fault that this is the treatment of him. But, oh, it's infuriating that. And Humphreys to Villarreal. I didn't hear that, Will, but like, Jesus, that's not yeah, surprising. It's, I, I, no, I, I'd be one of these people that if you put a fly in the wall camera and I didn't know about it and you watched me watch football by myself, you would come away thinking I have a mental illness because I do make weird noises, talk to myself and do the whole shebang um, out loud. But I mean, I was I was the same. I was almost I was laughing at it because Kulisevsky's goal was a brilliant goal, really good finish, had so much to do. And the commentator was, oh, that's sensational from Harry Kane. Sensational, he called him. He called him sensational for getting a flick on. It was 
Oh, it was, it really, really was incredibly frustrating. But again, like you say, it is just one of these things. That it's British commentary. That's what we have to put up with. But it's annoying that we have to put up with it. Uh, but every like, country's guilty. Can you not? Can you not be a little bit, a little yeah. bit on the fence? Every country's guilty of it. But we're just so exposed to British media that, like, that's you know, that's the biggest example we get. Like, but that's human nature. Like to follow your own. But oh, lads, please, can someone just be objective? Yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes time. it goes into overdrive but I think last night was overdrive again if anyone sat down and watched the Spanish coverage of Real Madrid and watched some of the kind of they almost go beyond just football and it's like 24-7 programming which is effectively Real Madrid TV on national television it's equally just as bad and I'm yeah. sure it's probably intriguing in Germany uh, over the last couple of days I saw Karl-Heinz Rummingen's uh, comments about Nagelsmann which didn't exactly seem to back him where they said we've got 18 players who are going to the World Cup later this year losing out in the Champions League quarterfinals is not good enough which almost when he's asked about Nagelsmann's tactics and the move to the three at the back that they're doing this season if you don't mention them it's almost like you've implicitly criticised them so uh, I wonder will Nagelsmann still be there Um, will they still see that he's the right man for the project given the talent that uh, Bayern Munich have on the other hand I think if I was Nagelsmann I would say that the defeat to Villarreal was a little bit of an anomaly two shots on target over the two legs they conceded two goals and went out uh, for two games that Bayern Munich for the best part were all over them and like Raul Albayol put in a performance during the week at the Allianz Arena which was almost generational for him too it was like thou shalt not pass with the way that he played so look again from a purely guilty point of view I'm delighted to see Villarreal go into the uh, semi-finals of the Champions League I had the joy of watching them in, with about 100 other people in Athlone 12 years ago uh, when they brought over a completely stacked team to play, which was captained by Marcus Senna. Uh, Rossi was up front. Uh, Mario Gaspar, who's still part of the team and was with the Europa League winning side, played as a teenager. I think he came off the bench. The Brazilian forward, Nilmar, came on during the game. Diego Lopez was in goal. And Bruno, who went on to play for Spain, was in midfield. Captavia was playing left back, was who had been part of the 2008 European team. Uh, no, it was, it was beyond his time. This was 2010. Uh, so I think uh, Raquel May was gone about two seasons before that. But to have a couple of future Spanish internationals, a linchpin of the Spanish midfield from the European winning team in 2008, and Rossi, who had you know, played for Manchester United and at that point signed for Villarreal, it was remarkable that there was a really that Saturday afternoon, primarily because Real Madrid were meant to play at Lone beforehand. But they ended up switching to play just one game in Ireland against Shamrock Rovers. I think people might remember that was on the TV Those and it was Ronaldo Cristiano Ronaldo's yeah. Yeah. first game. Yeah. Uh, but both teams, I think, were based, both Villarreal and Real Madrid could meet in the Champions League, were both based in Carton House that summer for their preseason. So um, Villarreal went on to win 3 0 at a Lone Town Stadium. Uh, very few people were there. But I'm um, delighted to say, because when I went to the Madrigal, Villarreal were playing away that week. I went to see Valencia uh, when. I went to visit Valencia, went out to Villarreal to have a look at their stadium. Never got to see the Yellow Submarine actually play at home. And now I think it's a trek that I probably want to do. I still have a Villarreal Cup somewhere here in the kitchen, uh, which I picked up at the Madrigal, but didn't get to see them. But did get to see them in Athlone a good 12 years ago now at this stage. Well, that's good. I just want to hammer home, but this is my final point on uh, Villarreal and the Champions League. Their team, Raul Albiol, Juan Foyth, uh, Francis Coughlin, Danny Parejo, Etienne Capu. 
uh, Giovanni Lo Celso, uh, Sergio Aria came off the bench. They've got pa- Paco Al- Alcazar as well. This is a team. This is an, an amazing team to be in the Champions League semi-final. It's an incredible team of misfits that just shouldn't work but do. So that's uh, my final point on Villarreal. We'll see how they get on. Hopefully they will at least put up a fight. It's not going to be a pretty game, I don't think, against Liverpool. They're going to be defensive in the same way that they were um throughout this competition so far. So we'll see. I think it'll be a tight game, tighter than what Jay Humphreys at least thinks it's going to be. We've gone way over time on Champions League, so we don't have much time left. Colm, uh, Eric Ten Hock is going to be the new Manchester United manager. He agreed terms with the club. Seems that he wants the players to be on board. He wants to, uh, he had very specific things that he wanted in his contract. If you're Eric uh, Ten Hock, what's your very specific thing that you want in your United contract? Autonomy, really, as much as possible. Um, he would have seen what happened the last decade. He would be taking notes uh, how to avoid all of those things happening. I'm sure he sought a lot of advice. He's, I probably, I'd say, he is optional hearing for that advice because a lot of people would tell him to stay away. Uh, I understand why he's taking it because it's not so much that Manchester United come once in a lifetime. You have to take it. I would say I was actually arguing it yesterday that if you're the person who changed United's fortunes around, then you're made for life. Now, the problem is, how do you define that? What, what is that defined by? Is it winning the Premier League, the Champions League, or is it just simply competing again? I think it's turning a club into a functional, uh, attractive football club again, primarily, and not so much a commercial outlet, first and for- foremost. If the, the two should go hand in hand, but not at the expense of football, that they become a really exciting proposition who consistently challenge for the league, don't have to win it all the time, and that we're talking about Manchester United in the Champions League semi-finals. That's what I, yeah. think I would say with constitute success. So to get to that point, uh, Ten Hag, if I was him, I'm, I'm asking for my my complete setup uh, to for my way. I know David Moyes did that, and that was one of the mistakes he made was that he got rid of the existing staff and brought in his own. Um, but he brought in a very he himself was inexperienced at that level. Um, Ten Hag hasn't managed at this level yet, but he is used to winning big leagues. Um, and you know he's been to the Champions League semi final was kicking the ball away from the final, so. He has uh, managed at the you know most pressurized level, so I would trust in his process. Um, the risk is if it doesn't work out and they get rid of Ten Hag after a season, then you have the Ten Hag structure there without Ten Hag himself. So then the next manager comes in has to start again, but you have to take that risk. Like you know, I heard something recently. I think it was in the Sunday Paper Review last week. I thought it was actually a very good point. Was that if you could, you'd actually stop Manchester United for three or four years. Just take them out of circulation so you can fix it and then reintroduce them when they're proper. But obviously you can't do that. Life goes on. You have to play all the time. Uh, it's like, you know, Leicester City should have taken the year after they won the league off because they were never going to do anything uh, as good again. But you have to keep them going. So in that regard, if if they're going to go ahead with Ted Hag now, which they almost certainly are, they have to give him what they want, what he wants, and they have to give him time. And that sounds like such a generic thing to say, but I am talking like, three seasons minimum unless he's a complete disaster and I'm talking disaster so even if it's not going that well even if the first season he finished 7th or 8th you have to back him at this stage because United are going to go nowhere it's going to be the same next 10 years if they get impatient they're worried about the outrage on social media they're worried about what people say about them so they react accordingly like oh yeah we're going to go after the best man for the job don't worry if they're going for Ten Hag Give him what he wants and give him time. Three years minimum. 
and then we'll see where United are. And if it doesn't work, then fair enough, the club has done all they can. But they have to think like at least medium term and not just short term. Look, I was a Pochettino guy, but happy to give Ten Hag a chance. He seems like he wants the job, which is crucial as well. He actually wants mm. it. I'm going to yeah. sound remarkably cynical here, lads, but I'm pretty sure I heard give the manager time no matter what happens about David Moyes, about Van Hal. Oh, uh, Solskjaer no. was meant to be given time too. Um, you know, there was, they were to trust the process and uh, everything was to be set up perfectly. Ragnick, they went out and got one of the best football directors in Europe and ended up making him a coach as opposed to a football director. Um, by the sounds of it, and I'm sure the truth will all come out in time in the wash, but it feels like Ralph Ragnick was not exactly consulted massively about Eric Ten Hag coming in to manage the club from next season. So Manchester United are an absolute basket case. I would not trust them to give time to Ten Hag coming in, but he has to jump ship now because Ajax are at the end of a cycle. A lot of their best players are leaving on free transfers at the end of the season, and some of the other top players Mm -hmm. like Anthony are very likely to be picked off by other European giants. Ajax aren't going to be at the level they were at this season where they could well have been the Villarreal story if they hadn't been beaten by Benfica, we could be talking about an Ajax team who go on a, a big run in Europe. They were brilliant in the group stages of the Champions League this year, but the reality is that they're just not going to be able to reach that level again. They're going to have to rebuild again and again and again. And if he wants to go to the next level and not be seen as a guy who was Pep Guardiola's assistant manager at you know the second team in Bayern Munich once upon a time, and he wants to go for the big time, this is the right time for Ten Hag to make the jump. But I don't know. I, I have real concerns whether... I think it's really good saying that right now. If they have poor results next season, they'll probably sack him. And Hank agrees as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Like, two, two barks to agree. Your, uh, look, your cynicism is totally fair. And I agree to it that, like, you know, give a manager time. It's such a cliche. Like, I don't even like the phrase myself, but they actually have to do it. Because, like, Will, like, what's the alternative? Like, unless they just keep it going short term all the time. Like, we know that the problem hasn't really been any of the managers. It's the club like that. Like, no, none of the managers since 2013 have gone in there trying to fail. They just, it's just gone horribly wrong and it's made previously reputable managers like a different person altogether after. Like, David Moyes has done a really great job second time around at West Ham, but he will always be David Moyes, that Manchester United manager, despite having 11 years at Everton before that. This club can destroy people. And uh, I really mm. don't blame the individuals in charge at the top, but I don't see what choice they have. And I'm, I'm like, Ten Hag's not even my first choice, but totally willing to get behind them if they give them control. But they have to. Yeah, well, yeah they, they only can't go back in time. And the reality is that they were empowering decisions throughout the club to guys who were bringing in noodle sponsors and tractor sponsors and were far more concerned about the money that was coming into the coffers as opposed to the football side to the club. There should have been continuity throughout. Like, how long have we been talking about the fact that you know, Manchester United need to go out and get a proper football director? Whether that was, like, say, if they're taking someone else from Ajax, why don't they go and get Edwin van der Sar, who's yeah. done a really good job so far as their football director, carries himself remarkably well, you know, very good in the transfer market. Like, does Ragnick have a role beyond the end of this year or is there a golden handshake in the summer that says, look, the coaching didn't really work out, but you're not going to fit with the new system that we have in? They've gone from such different contrasting styles of football from Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's you know, very passive counter-attacking style to Ragnick, who's trying to go with a high press and almost plays a bit more like Klopp. And now they're bringing in a manager who's much closer to Pep Guardiola's system and comes almost from the Cruyff school, who's yeah. going to change the style of football all over again. 
And it just seems bonkers. And it, again, Manchester's transfer strategy for so long has been about signing shiny players that are available, whether that's Cristiano Ronaldo, Rafael Varane. You know, it's almost like we will sign Donny van de Beek, signed with no plan whatsoever in how he'd be integrated into the team. It goes way beyond the managers, but I rate Eric Ten Hag as a coach very highly. So again, I think if he does well, things will be happy days. But I just wonder at what point the United panic if it doesn't work out early next season. Mm. That's uh, where we'll have to leave it because we're just about out of time. Colm, thanks very much. Well, well, yeah, well, I mean, come on. You can't just give leave us it. Like, proper goodbye here. Come on, uh, like, give us just speech here. Like, do no, a speech. There's no, there's no speech. I'm bowing out gracefully, just like... How um, long have Alex you been Kingston. the host? Your job now is speech. to support the next host. Great, great line. <laughs> and look what happened there for the next nine years. Yeah. Um, and uh, how long have you been hosting Team 33? Two years, I think. Is it two years? And two despite years. what you just WhatsApped me a while ago saying, what was your favorite moment? Have you had a think? I, I have not. <laughs> I actually don't know. Probably my first time hosting. It was just a weird experience. What was weird your first experience. time? Do you remember who was on and what was discussed? It was in the January of the new year before COVID existed, which was nice. Um, and Philip Egan and I did a winners and losers of the Christmas period of games, I think was my first ever one, which was which was good. And will you remember your last ever one? Of course I will, because it's oh, probably the best episode. Did Phil Egan stand you up or how did we end up on this week? Yeah, I actually didn't give him a text. I should have given him a text. So were your favorite two guests from uh, two and a quarter years? Absolutely. One hundred percent. I say Especially most, most available guests. I say you say that's all. Yeah, I mean, that's we. Yeah, that there's no ability like availability. Like, we I mean, look, best available. What's the difference, really? It's kind of all the same, isn't it? I will get it out of you one day. Points next weekend. Yeah. Get it then. Indeed, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, lads, we we are actually out of time. So uh, thank you very much for your contribution on Team Thirty Three while I've been the host. So it's been a pleasure. Thanks, and uh, best of luck in your travels. Best of luck. Take it easy. All right, so that is us done on this week's Team 33 and me done on Team 33 for the time being at least. I'm leaving off the ball. I'm heading on my travels for the next couple of months, just getting away and recharging the batteries. You know yourself, you need to take a break from time to time as well. But it's been an absolute pleasure coming to you every week, every Friday night at 9 o'clock on Team 33 to chat a little bit about football, a little bit about other stuff and have a rant here and there as well about Manchester United and their favours, and talk a little bit about Celtic as well. I hope you enjoyed my time in charge of Team 33, and for the future of what is to come, hopefully you will continue tuning in to News Talk at 9 o'clock every Friday night, and we can try to keep you company as best we can. Absolute pleasure coming to you for the last time from me and a call. Take away, Johan. 